the world holds its breath as the tribulation force ventures to Jerusalem for the great meeting of the witnesses, where tens of thousands defy the Antichrist to sit under the ministry of their pastor-teacher, Zion ben Judah. The fifth trumpet judgment, a plague of scorpion-like locusts led by Apollyon, chief demon of the abyss, is so horrifying that men try to kill themselves but are not allowed to die. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Do you see that? The plane's falling out of the sky! The future has come to pass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Survive the Rapture. We're that podcast that examines the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Okay. We're here. It's time. Gavin, it's time. Welcome to the weirdness. Time to release the destroyer. It's time to unleash the destroyer. I command judgment on you. (laughs) All right. We are starting out with part one for Apollyon. The destroyer is unleashed. So this is book five. If I had to think back to my first time reading these back in middle school, this is a book that has very distinct memories for me. It holds a very special place in my heart. I remember being in middle school, playing Star Fox Adventures on GameCube, all the while also building Bionicles and listening to this book on CD that we had gotten from the library. And this one being the one that really hit me with, wow, this is weird. And I've been promising it and I've been teasing it. And Gavin, to you off mic, I've been setting it up. Let's go ahead and say, at least for this first part, how did this hit you? At least starting off, did it live up to the hype? Uh, I hate to disappoint you, but uh, it didn't live up quite to the monolithic hype that you've been putting. Okay, it that's on our show. Couple- Remember to like, follow, and subscribe, and uh, join the community on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it. While I, because I've gotten through a uh, a full read of this book, and I can see, okay, there's some moments in here that I've been waiting for since the beginning. And there are, there are a few parts in here that do live up to the hype. However, for just as much of the good stuff that there is, there's like some absolutely abysmal parts. Like my first go through of this first third, I'm like, oh, no, this this kind of sucks a little <laughs> bit. But at the same time, it's like I said, got some great moments. This is where the weird starts really coming in. But then also to contrast, you have something that you should probably never put in a book coming up in this section that just left behind gets the most graphic it has so far in just the ugh, ugh of ways. Think I know what you're talking about specifically, and I want you to point it out when we get there, but I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about. So let's go ahead and dive in. You ready? 
All right, Lip, let's go. So we get another prologue, as has become tradition at this point. And it's basically just wrapping up the end of Soul Harvest. If you are binging these episodes and you just got done with Soul Harvest and you skipped our off-the-record episode, as people are wont to do. So, you know, go back and listen to the off-the-record if you haven't yet. Um, But if, yeah, if you're binging these and you're jumping straight in from Soul Harvest, you've heard this part of the prologue already. It's just the ending of Soul Harvest. We find out about how Ray needs to go over Amanda's files and he really doesn't want to because he doesn't want to confirm that she might have been a traitor. We get that terrible line again, wife or witch, he had to know. Yeah. mm. You want to go ahead and get that off your chest now, buddy? (sighs) Okay, so I've had problems with Amanda White since she was first introduced, as all of you may know, but Soul Harvest presented me with a possible redemption of the worst introduction ever. And it was just like, okay, Amanda White might be a double agent. She might be evil. She might be working for Carpathia. No, she's clean as a whistle. She's like, she's still the picture perfect. You know, I met your wife at church character that we got in Tribulation Force. And like all of that setup in Soul Harvest of that inner monologue that Rayford had is for nothing. I am mad like that. That that was like the biggest like lump of nothing that they could focus on for an entire book just for it to be lol. Oops. No, uh, she's not evil. Have, have fun. That's not even really a spoiler because you're going to hear about that in less than an hour. But the whole Amanda White subplot, apart from just making Ray more of a sad boy, is a big old nothing burger. Yeah, and, like, that was that was something I was genuinely, like, engaged with. Because that would have added, like, a whole bunch more stakes. It would have added to the whole, like, I'm thing. so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I, I strung you along, dude. I couldn't spoil it. I know, but, like, that was, like, the one thing that I was looking forward to. Somewhat of, like, some continuity. Where, like, Bruce Barnes was like, remember, like, you might not even be able to trust me in, like, a, f- a few months or, like, years. And now, like, that kind of uh that connection that i was getting there like oh man like rayford's wife like you can't even trust her nope uh, just out, out the window and there goes that theory where like she or carpathia was gonna bring her back to life and like she was gonna do some like dark witch stuff but you know you didn't really get it with hattie and now you're not getting it with amanda but you will get your black magic eventually i promise it will get there and when it does I just want to hear what you think. I, I'm, I, you know what? That's the only thing I'm banking on now. Like after Amanda's going to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> when it gets there, it does get wild. I promise. All right. Let's go ahead and get into chapter one because we end with Captain Steel schedule that flight. That flight is Nikolai is going to be going with his entourage to Jerusalem for the grand meeting of the witnesses. And most of the action is going to be taking place in Jerusalem. So we open up with chapter one. This is the most underwhelming opening line that we've had in a Left Behind book so far. It's just Rayford Steele worried about Mac McCullum's silence in the cockpit of Global Community One during the short flight from New Babylon to Tel Aviv. And why I don't like that is kind of because we've talked about how they may have been trying to take the Stanley approach of every Left Behind book is someone's first Left Behind book. Uh, They throw 
so much at you. They mentioned Mac McCullum. They mentioned Global Community One. They mentioned New Babylon. You might not know what any of those mean if this is your first book. And that just personally irked me a little bit. But yeah, this is the first one where they don't give us kind of some scene setting. And I think they were trying that and it didn't work because spoilers by the next book, you're going to get a prologue that gives you a almost two wordy rundown of everyone and what's going on. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that when we get to book six. They're talking again about the intercom button that they have to listen into the members of the global community without their knowledge. Right now in the plane, we have the potentate Nikolai Carpathia, Supreme Commander Leon Fortunato, and Pontifex Maximus Peter Matthews. Right before he presses the button, Mac is like, hey, don't press it. We need to talk real quick. There's suspicion that they know that there's the listening device in. So starting out pretty high stakes. Flying over Israel, they say it's one of the only places that look normal from the air since the earthquake and the subsequent judgments, because that's one of the places that has been saved from any ruin by Eli and Moisha. Carpathia had used the results of the most recent trumpet judgments to postpone the Israel conference twice before, but now it's for sure going on. Because Zion threw down the gauntlet and said, we're doing this with or without you. Yeah. Looks like you're going to do it with me. I'll be there. Yeah. They find out that they're not going directly to Jerusalem. Yes, they're flying to Tel Aviv. And Leon actually comes into the cockpit to kind of be like, yeah, you're not going to Jerusalem. We know you want to, and we know your people are there, but no, you're going to stay here. So the GC knows, and they are still keeping Ray on retainer because they can't quite prove anything he's done yet. They can't burn him entirely. Mm -hmm. So Leon comes in to just sort of throw off his plans, rub salt in the wound. Then Ray gets his revenge because he pulls that classic move of dipping the plane before someone has had a chance to uh, buckle in and knocks Leon off his feet. (laughs) This is actually something I like. Like the amount of tension in the room and the amount of animosity in the room. Like they know, you know. It's one of those things where like you go to a party with a mutual friend and there's just somebody that you can't stand there. Mm -hmm. And like you guys both go to the drink table at the same time. You have to say hi. You have to acknowledge each other. It's like, I know I don't like you. You know, I don't like you. You know, you don't like me. I know you don't like me, but we got to be cordial, at least for right now, because we both like our friend, you know? (laughs) Right. Uh, Oh, oh, we get to Buck Williams. Yep. Buck and Chloe are already at the stadium. Buck has to bring up in his thoughts that her beauty had been turned to strange cuteness. So she's not a monster anymore, like it said in the last book. By the reshaping of her cheekbone and eye socket. Yeah, that was a line that I carried from my original reading in middle school. I was like, we're going to get to that line. And it always stuck with me like, oh, that's really bad. Yeah. They're talking a little bit more about Hattie and how Chloe has not left her side and she's not leaving her side until she improves in her condition or becomes a believer. And she has done neither of those things. Yeah, because if we recall from last time, Hattie is one of those, I want Jesus, but he couldn't possibly want me type of people. She is deep into self-loathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that will be a reoccurring thought throughout this section and book. We go back to Rayford and Mac, and Carpathia just says, I'm eager to welcome the devotees of Dr. Ben Judah and to display the openness of the global community to diverse opinion and belief. Yeah, he's laying it on real thick. Him and Ben Judah are going to be in the same, like, place 
for the first time. Yeah, so so they've never been literally in the same location. So it's going to be intense. And then Mac actually brings Ray secretly somewhere where there are no recording devices because Mac is fully aware because the GC is still confiding in him. They don't know that Mac is a believer. Mac's like, dude, you got to come meet with me somewhere where they can't hear us. Yeah. Back to Buck, Ken, Chloe, and Zion. We find out that they took a private Gulfstream jet to Israel. So remember all that money they got thrown around in like the first three books and then we sort of swerved away from that during Soul Harvest? They, they still got it. Let's just get Oh yeah, <laughs> Dude, and this on top of some other stuff that happens in this book, like the money is not an obstacle thing, is back. Oh yeah, I so, know. But that's not going to have to happen for another part or two. But Buck has made the decision to choose to show up in public with Ben Judah, but that comes at a price because now he is for sure coming out in the open, working with the Tribulation Force, and that's going to get him fired from Global Community Weekly, and he's going to lose his salary. But as we just say, that's not going to matter because they have infinite money still somehow. <laughs> ben Judah even says, like, hey, stand beside me. No disguises, no misdirection, no hiding. God can protect me. He can protect you. Let's start playing Carpathia's games. And him getting fired from Global Community Weekly isn't even going to matter because he is is still working on The Truth, which is his cyberspace magazine. <laughs> and apparently it's attracting 10 times the largest reading audience he had ever had. And this guy had worked for major news outlets before. So somehow, like, he's just bumping with his new stuff. What is this conference all about? What is this? This big gathering of the witnesses? I think they're just gathering and like having their first like public meeting and not online. Yeah, it, it is that, but it has the most in common with something that I think is pretty ubiquitous across a lot of evangelical denominations, and that is a ministry conference. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever been to one of those? I've been to like a giant concert before that kind of doubles as a ministry conference, but nothing ever explicitly one. Yeah, so not too dissimilar. Ministry conferences usually include concerts. The bigger ones will bring in contemporary Christian bands. I went to ones that had like Switchfoot and Cutlass. And oh like yeah, I've Reliant seen Switchfoot and... too, yeah. You see Switchfoot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jars of Clay, like Jeremy Camp. That was my era of CCM. What a ministry conference focuses on, you will have praise and worship time, you'll have these performances, you will have social time. And the whole point is that it is a training opportunity as well, because you'll go in, you'll listen to a sermon, you'll see a concert, you'll sing some songs, and then you will break out into smaller groups. And a lot of times these groups are still pretty massive, like the size of like a large college class. And they take you to different little training modules about like witnessing or starting prayer groups or starting new churches or getting active in your community. So it becomes a combination of a big church service, a concert, and a training weekend. Okay, yeah, I've been to stuff like, like I said, concerts and stuff and like summer camps that kind of resemble this sort of thing. There I saw like the giant like rapture skit at one of these camps. 
what you could kind of consider it almost like a ministry conference. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Totally. Yeah. That's the kind of thing. And you see these performances and things like that. As I got a little older into like high school, they stopped being as focused on training and were way more about like the headlining bands and the headlining ministers. Yeah. Headlining preachers. If that's a concept you can wrap your mind around. That's hilarious. It is so <laughs> like mega churchy, you know? I know some of these, some of these places would try to get like the guy from duck dynasty on there oh god yeah i'm sure actually he actually spoke at well the i I wasn't going to the church when this happened but the guy from duck dynasty actually spoke at my local church was it phil the dad i think so yeah the i hate gays guy yeah 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 oh gross man (laughs) (laughs) not shocking That's basically what we're in for. And that is going to be the setting for a lot of the action for this first part and pretty much the rest of the book. Buck knows that showing up with Zion, like you said, is officially going to out him to Carpathia. The weirdest thing starts to happen when Zion gets there. People start treating him like a holy figure almost. Because I originally wrote in my notes like the Beatles. Yeah. Because like they're trying to touch him and like they're calling out to him and he can't get to where he needs to be. He needs security and stuff like that. But it's really almost like he's the Pope. In a way, like, I I don't know, I want to say Protestant Pope, but he is like the largest spiritual leader in this setting right now, other than Peter Matthews, I'd say. I think they're trying to evoke like a Billy Graham image with him. I'm sure if you sat Tim and Jerry down and said, like, who is Zion to you? As long as Tim didn't say, well, myself, he would probably said like Billy Graham. Yeah. You know, an evangelist who commands these giant stadiums full of people for revivals and brings all these people into the kingdom. So they get to the holy city and they go to check in and it turns out Leon being the petty bitch that he is booked their rooms over. Really? (laughs) Like just to twist the knife. Like he booked all the rooms in their hotel where they were because he can do that because he works for the king of the world. They now have nowhere to stay. But thankfully our old buddy, Dr. Chaim Rosenzweig comes in clutch and is like, No, you guys are going to stay with me. You guys are going to stay with me at my giant mansion compound with like armed guards and stuff. So rather than having to stay in a hotel and be vulnerable, our Tribulation Force members have a place to stay and they are staying with Haim. They get in with Paige Yakov, who will become a a semi-important character in in this book. Yeah, Yakov's awesome. Yeah, Yakov is Haim's driver. I don't think we've met him before, have we? So I don't know if we've met Yakov before. I I don't think we have, but yep, he is, uh, he'll be coming back and he's pretty cool. So it's important to note that this is going to be taking place at Teddy Colic Stadium which is in Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. it has a capacity now of about Mm 34,000. So we're about 110,000 short. It tries to explain this by saying like just the other remaining people are just crowd around outside it. But just, oh man, that's unbelievable to think you're trying to cram that many people into that stadium. I can definitely tell that Tim and Jerry have been involved in big high production value church events before mm-hmm. because of the way that they write about it about like the backstage operation and the production side and all the pre-planning and everything like that because it's not easy to put these on it's like putting on a massive music festival yeah much like a music festival there are satellite sites that all of the other attendees are supposed to go to so once the stadium is filled up you go to a satellite site you watch a simulcast it's a pretty common thing. I mean, in mega churches, they do it all the time. Like 
you know, you can't fit everybody in the sanctuary at like Lakewood. They will have other smaller rooms that you can go in and watch the sermon simulcasted. Okay. We find out from Mac when he meets with Ray, the GC have assigned Mac to Ray. They want him to monitor Ray, give them all the information that they have on him, and the GC is going to try to take Ray down if he leaves Tel Aviv. What they don't know is obviously that Mac is on Ray's side, or so it's a stroke of luck for Ray, but it's definitely Mac saying like, dude, your time here is short. You're almost done. Mac mentions that he has some little handheld electronic organizers that David has ordered like half a dozen of. Mentions that you can access the internet, send and receive messages, and use them as phones, you name it. So essentially, they've now gotten full smartphones, but they're calling them little handheld electronic advisor. Uh, Was that like a big thing? You remember Palm Pilots? No. You don't remember Palm Pilots. Okay, so Palm Pilot was like a little handheld thing and it had a stylus. Think of those like Kindle e-reader type screens. yes. Yeah, you would write on them. You could send email. You could do all these other things. Some of them, I think, could make phone calls. So that's the idea behind these things, which again- okay, I've seen Ashen's video about this. Okay, yeah. yeah. They are updating the technology to make it easier on the characters. And by doing that, they're just designing tech that would become commonplace later, which is kind of neat. Like I keep saying this, they have the worldwide cell network that's solar powered. We now have smartphones moving the technology forward in a way that I don't even think they necessarily intended. Well, I mean, they weren't, they were expecting the world to end uh, before now. So I forgot about that part. (laughs) So speaking of David, David's one to watch. He is going to become a more major character starting in the next book. He and Mac are both still trusted by the GC. David is going to be another mole for the tribulation force inside the GC. And with that, we cut back to Zion and Buck. They decide that they are going to go meet with Eli and Moisha. They're going to kind of get one last sort of like pep talk from Eli and Moisha in their very Eli and Moisha fashion. They make an arrangement with Ken for Ken to take Ray back to the States Mm -hmm. so that he's safe and so that he can talk to Hattie personally about Amanda so he can learn the truth. Gotcha. And they come up upon the three witnesses. Chloe has never met them before, so she's super stoked. They caution, these are heavenly beings with their own agenda. They may communicate with us. They may not. We We approach them with great caution. So they approached the wrought iron fence where they're usually hanging out at around the Wailing Wall. No one had seen them sleep in a bit. Threats on their lives have kind of stopped mostly because uh, everyone's worried of getting got by fire breath. Yeah, at this point, it's weird. It's been, it's getting on three and a half years that these guys have been out there. And so they're just kind of becoming part of the furniture. Yeah. No sooner have they showed up to see Eli and Moisha, then somebody decides he's going to come crash the party. Yeah, Nikolai Carpathia busts in right as they rehash that, hey, you know, you don't even have to understand their language to understand them. He jumps in and, and someone yells, Carpathia, it's the potentate. And everyone starts clearing the way. But right as he kind of strolls in, Eli and Moisha, Moisha spring to life. Moisha specifically yells out in a loud voice, woe unto the enemy of the most high God. And the witnesses, as soon as Nikolai gets near them, they start speaking in a very hushed tones. And only Carpathia and Buck can hear what the witnesses are saying to them. And one of them is, a sword shall pierce your head and you shall surely die. Come on, man. Easy with the spoilers. (laughs) 
Yeah, sorry to spoil uh, book 12 of The Left Behind, but... Oh, is it book 12? We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Oh, man. But, like, okay, he swaggers up. Like, he rocks up to this fence. No fear. Gets right up on these guys, which he has been fantasizing about their death for so long. And when they start calling him the enemy of God, this dude turns around and says, I'm hardly the enemy of God. In fact, many say I am the most high God. The balls on this dude. Yeah, dude. Like, he is just tempting fate right now, and I'm kind of living for it. All right, so I want you to pull up a Bible verse for me if you can. All right, hold on. It's be every time. We need to pull up Revelation 13, 3. All right, Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? This is actually where that line, A sword shall pierce your head, and you shall surely die, Oh, is referencing. They're not quoting direct scripture there. They are speaking prophecy. Yeah. In Tim LaHaye's interpretation, the beast out of the sea is the Antichrist. So there's a lot of symbolism here, and I'm about to nerd out over it a little bit. The beast comes out of the sea. Specifically, the sea or the ocean is a place that the Spirit of God moved over during the process of creation. Mm -hmm. Or rather, when the sea was divided, the Spirit of God moved over the face of the water. So he is defiling the place where God's Spirit moves. It is a chimera of a beast. It is like leopard and lion and all these other things. And it has horns and it has crowns on it. It's a weird perversion of creation that is also animals from different corners of the earth, at least as far as the writer of Revelation would have considered to be corners of the earth. It is exotic animals. So Nikolai being of ambiguous national descent, which you find out in some of the prequels, and they've kind of made references to it a couple of times in the series. And then it has a mortal wound in one of its heads. That is where Tim LaHaye is taking the assassination portion of it at the three and a half years. Then the dragon gives its power to the beast, the dragon being Satan. You know, Satan being depicted as a dragon goes forward through medieval Christianity, like the the story of St. George and the dragon. The Satan being depicted as a dragon thing is actually something that I ran into growing up in church. We had people who would give things like Mulan the side eye because of the, you know, the presence of a dragon. So anything that was dragon stuff. Mushu is the mark of the beast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's Eddie Murphy, man, the whole time. Dragon tales. Pete's dragon, blue eyes, white dragon, Chinese New Year dragon, doesn't matter. Anything that's a dragon, you got to be like, "Mm, I don't know about that. Smog the dragon. I mean, that that kind of checks with how Dialga was demonized when I was growing up. Yep, yep, yep. You know what? I remember my parents not ever having a problem with Smog the dragon. 
Like they're like, oh, Hobbit, it's cool. Oh, really? But remember that Tolkien gets a pass because he was a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything Tolkien-esque. So the magic is fine. The dragons are fine. All that stuff is fine because Tolkien was a Christian. Same with C.S. Lewis. So any of the Narnia stuff gets a pass. Harry Potter, though, that's Satan. Get out of the way. Yeah, my folks originally were like, eh, on Harry Potter. I remember my dad being like, eh, just read Lord of the Rings. It's probably better. I don't think we really need another like series for you to become obsessed with. You're already real into Lord of the Rings. Interesting. My parents never came down on the Satan thing for Harry Potter, weirdly enough. And like they've since like kind of started to like it. And now I got to tell them that it's a problematic. (laughs) (laughs) I remember telling my mom that right after she kind of really liked Harry Potter. And then I was like, well, some stuff came out about the lady who wrote that. And she was like, well, that's disappointing. Why can't she be nice to people? (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's my mom. I love her to death. So yeah, Nikolai warns the witnesses not to attend the gathering. He's like, you guys better not show up. And they're like, we go where we want. You have no power here. And then we cap off the chapter. And I know we're spending a lot of time on chapter one. I promise this is going to pick up the pace. There's just a lot of fun stuff in here. For the first time, Eli and Moisha say, he or she who has ears, let them hear. And originally I heard that this time and was like, oh, that's kind of neat. The books are moving in a little bit more of a progressive direction. Nope, it's not that. It's not a progressive step. They're saying it because Chloe is in the audience and they want her to hear it too. Chapter two. So Ray gets away with Ken pretty much scot-free. And they kind of get to know each other on the way back. Yeah, they start bringing up each other uh, about their past. Basically, it gives them a rundown of how uh, he was the father-in-law to Buck. He missed Bruce Barnes, who was the big spiritual god uh, after the rapture. And, you know, he's really latching on to Ken because he actually has like a friend who he can talk to and confide in. So yeah, poor Mac is sitting over there like, oh, I thought I was your friend. Uh, I thought we 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 looked at marks uh, on each other. I thought we uh, thought we were tight, bro. I showed you my mark. Please respond. <laughs> Ken does a lot of talking as he is wont to do during this section. And he says, the only member of the force without a specialty is your daughter. And like points out again that Chloe's just like, look, the woman. Uh-huh. And I just wrote, uh-huh. He has a couple of other choice lines. He refers to Nikolai as a rascal. Yeah, let's take all on that rascal. Doing the cowboy thing still kind of. And I, I mean, all right, man, go off, I guess. And then he says, I wish we would just quit playing and get to the war. Yeah. What'd you think about that? This isn't his last like bloodthirsty thing in this book. So I'm just coming to expect in it from this guy. Yeah, he is the voice of the preppers. And you're going to find out more about Ken later vis-a-vis prepping. Because remember, he was alien guy before, way back when. He was he was space alien guy. Now he is Christian guy who knows the truth, but that stuff didn't just go away. Oh no, he's Alex Jones with a cowboy hat on. For real, my guy. <laughs> Next, he's going to try to be selling testosterone to Rayford. Brain Force Plus, man. <laughs> Trib Force Plus. <laughs> Shut up. (laughs) Oh my God. That's staying in. That's perfect. This podcast energy supplement that will start. Someone please meme that. Please. That's an easy one. We got that. Yep. So we find out that, like I said before, Hattie apparently does know the truth about Amanda. They finally land at Palwaki and we meet another believer whose name is Ernie, who works with Ken at Palwaki. And they describe him as a Ben Judah groupie. Uh, Okay. (laughs) You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Oh, yeah. And then they go to uh, see Donnie's wife's grave to check it out just to pay their respects. 
Yeah, because I guess Ray knew Donnie and his wife and actually has not been to the safe house yet. So, yeah, he goes and pays his respects. Yeah, and it, uh, it dawns on him that pretty soon that the these little underground safe house shelters um, that have been built across the area, the day is going to come when they have to live in these for like prolonged periods of time in order to survive. And he's still wanting to know about Amanda. He's still in the dark about that. After he sees the grave, um, he finds out Hattie's not doing well. Her condition is declining, as we found out last time. It's very likely that she has been poisoned. And Ray kind of has a little thought to himself about who would survive and how long was all under God's control and timing. I just wrote, or Tim and Jerry's, because, you know, they're writing the story. And he describes Hattie as his former co-worker, friend, and object of flirtation. Oh, so he just calls her an object. Yeah, you know, me and uh, Hattie, we almost, uh, we almost like got down and dirty, but we didn't. We didn't. Uh, but that almost happened. Like that, it's weird just how often they just need to bring that up. Yeah, I feel like he needs to bring it up as his internal monologue so much. It's weird. There is a weird exchange between Floyd and Ray about sleeping pills that has some weird moralizing undertones. Like, listen, I'm not a pill pusher, but uh, if you're jet lagged and need something to help you sleep. And he's like, what, do you want some? Uh, never touch the stuff. It's just bad. And then he says, you look wasted. And again, you keep using that word. <laughs> then I think it means what you think it means. I'm just, I don't know. I, I like to imagine just this guy just like down in shots, like while he's just up in the air. That's how I want my pilots sauced. <laughs> and then we find out that Floyd is out of his job at the hospital. So the net is starting to close around the Tribulation Force members. The GC does see them as a threat, and they are slowly starting to make life more difficult for them. So the offensive against Christians, the grand persecution, has truly started to move. We've talked previously about the evangelical obsession with persecution. It's here now, baby. Oh, yeah, and it will only keep on ramping up. The I think the next big one that I'm excited for is the mark. Because, like, all the rest of the books after this point, I'm, like, pretty pumped. Like, all right, I want to see what they do with it. Because, like, that's the big, like, oh, like, we're all going to have the mark of the beast. Yeah, it's also the updated book cover that has a guillotine on it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's not symbolic. Oh, man, they go full France and... (laughs) (laughs) You'll see. You'll see. We'll get there. It's actually not that far off. I think it's, like, book eight. Yeah. Yeah, so we we got a little bit of time, but we're getting there. So we're back to Hyam's compound. He has met with Nikolai and Leon and then summoned Buck, Chloe, and Zion back to his compound. Um, And like I said, it is a compound. It has walls, it has security cameras, it has gates, it has armed guards. Like it is a palace almost that Hyam lives in. Mm -hmm. We find out from the meeting between Hyam and Nikolai and Leon that Nikolai wants to be on the program for the conference. He wants to show up. And Zion's like, no, absolutely not. Yeah, it's like, no, I'm not going to let the literal Antichrist come to God conference. And Hyam's like, oh, don't be silly. Come on. Like, he's a godly man. He's a world. He's the ruler of the world. I almost kind of want to look at Hyam and be like, do you hear what you're saying right now? (laughs) Like, I get it. Like, you know, he's an old friend of yours, but like, come on, dude. What kind of reception do you expect this guy is going to get? And he's just like, oh, come now. He's a guy, nice guy. But I'm like, oh, but I'm I'm not a believer, Zion. So wh- why not welcome Nikolai with the same level of uh, enthusiasm? Because he's like, he's an enemy of God. Like, you know, you're not yet a believer, but we consider you. And he interrupts him like, not yet a believer, because they're getting kind of cocky toward him, thinking that he's absolutely for sure going to convert, which and we'll see. pretty sure. 
that's where the book is headed, but I could be wrong. They've disappointed us before, Gav. Yeah, they have. I, I can't expect anything with this book. If, if I get too excited for something, it, it won't happen. Heim makes a deal with Zion saying like, all right, if you grant Nikolai a place on the program, I'm going to give like the full matters to whatever speech you have to try to convert me. But I don't, he doesn't even listen to this. He's like, no. Yeah, he says, look, tell Leon I'll pray about it. <laughs> and look, hey, I know that response. If your parents or anybody in church tells you I'm going to pray about it, the answer is probably no. <laughs> Sorry. If you grew up in church, you know this. Yep. I, I can't even disagree. <laughs> I know. You know. So Hattie back at the safe house kind of starts to stir. And of course, Ray rushes down to her bedside. She just sort of recaps everything that we found in Soul Harvest. She's like, hey, Nikolai poisoned me. He poisoned Bruce Barnes. He bragged about it. This dude is pure evil. She explains how she was involved with Amanda and she could have stopped it. This is like the crumb of, okay, they're trying to do something a little bit here. Hattie was a, a part of faking a lot of the evidence that Amanda was a turncoat. Hattie like faked a lot of it, which I thought was kind of cool. So it's a major letdown from like, hey, Ray, sorry I put you through all that mental anguish. My bad. And she says that Nikolai has experts who can do that. We're into chapter three now because it leads from that little that little talk into chapter three. Yeah, Nikolai has experts who can fake all that stuff. And I'm like, all right. Sure. They intercepted all of the emails and like learned her style and was like, yeah, right in this style. The espionage angle is kind of neat. I like how they have like that they're explaining like Carpathia's espionage arm. Yeah, espionage. Like he has an army of trolls, but that are focused on like one guy. He calls up R slash atheist and like, I have a I have a mission for you. <laughs> and they tip their fedoras as one and go, yes, my lord. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And they ready their katanas and they look at Ray and say, nothing personal, kid. <laughs> oh, and I just remembered uh, where it like fully fleshes out, because this is exactly where it uh, explains that Amanda's not evil. I just put a like in highlighter, a giant angry face through that section. I was mad. We'll have to post that picture on the page. Yeah. And I also, also wrote, Fuck, but then I... <laughs> But I, but I blotted that out because I can't put in my good Christian left behind. No, not in here. <laughs> so those lines were, Ray, she was all you believed she was and more. Totally devoted to you. And so I wrote, yeah, no Amanda Ark. Sorry, bud. That's it. So much of a waste. I, I'm not like freaking out. Like I didn't like tribulation force is heavy, but like just know that I wish I could scream so hard that this mic just peaks for like a solid minute. <laughs> He screamed like Ray did. I, I found it interesting that right after, in his internal monologue, Ray just goes, well, he never questioned the genuineness of Amanda's devotion to God. And I was like, uh, yes, you did. You just spent an entire book doing that, my dude. You did that the whole book, my guy. What are you talking about? What do you mean? It never happened. It didn't happen. Forget all that. And then Hattie goes on to claim that she has done worse than Bruce and Amanda. Hmm. She was party to the Bruce death, part of the Amanda cover-up, and somehow worse. So we're going to have to keep listening. So we get back to Haim's estate, and Zion ben Judah uh, has a plan. He's like, you know what? Nikolai can show up if he wants to, but I'm not going to acknowledge him. I'm not going to recognize him. I'm not going to introduce him if he comes to the platform. If he comes up there, 
I'm just gonna step out of his way and let him let him talk. But that that's all he's, he's getting. It's a power. Yeah. Chloe asks, or when Eli and Moish is gonna show up, and he's like, Oh, I left that to the Lord. They'll show up when they need to show up. Zion's weirdly chill about all this. I guess like it's because you know he's the most like in tune with everything of all the characters. So he's just kind of like going in the motions, floating down river, whatever's gonna happen. Well, happens. he's he's but very strong in his faith, and I think that that's actually yeah. an admirable quality in that he truly does trust God to handle this. Like he's gonna do his part, God's gonna do the rest. Which uh, yeah, I'll have to give him to him. Like he's a really strong character for that. There's a GEC escort that is like guiding the Tribulation Force Mercedes van to the stadium. Every single artery of this stadium is just packed with cars and pedestrians. It even says he hadn't even seen like this many happy people in one place since the rapture. Like this is a the biggest event since the rapture happened. Yeah. So Yakov coming in clutch again, finds ways to get through all the crazy traffic. He starts ducking into like over medians and starts going through back roads and gets them there on time. And they're all... You become a baby driver. Yeah, it's a baby driver. They get to the stadium. They start loading in. Um, we meet a man named Daniel, who was going to be the MC for the show. People are in the VIP room praying. Very common around these kinds of events. Um, you almost have your green room and then you have your prayer room. The stadium's filling up. People are shouting and praying and they're spelling the name of Jesus. Also, not something I'm unfamiliar with, but I still think it's weird. Yeah. This in the stands just saying J-E-S-U-S. All right. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen this kind of scenario before where like right before one of those big concerts, like everyone's just like making some noise. All of the youth pastors and leaders for like the individual churches, they're like all hyping up their crowds, like just getting people ready for whatever is like is about to go down. Yeah, and it's an easy thing, kind of like the stomp, stomp, clap from We Will Rock You. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're just spelling out a five letter word. So it kind of gets everybody in the mood. You know, they're all kind of clapping and going along with it. Things start to kick off. There are translators assigned to speak at the edge of the stage because there's all different languages are going to be spoken here. And as soon as Daniel gets up and starts addressing the crowd, all of a sudden everyone starts reacting to everything that he's saying. Like they can understand it. They are just ecstatic. Like it takes them a second to figure out what's going on. But once they do, they just send the translators away. They just keep on going at it. They all pray together. After a big pray, everyone yells, amen. And then they go into singing Amazing Grace. And dude, the guy who's uh, who narrates these audiobooks, he has a pretty decent uh, singing Yeah, voice, he's pretty dude. good. Like, I wasn't expecting him to actually sing. And the audiobook reader actually sings the song. And it was very sweet. He's a pretty good singer. I, I wonder if he does any other singing yeah, stuff. Yeah, he got that vibrato in there and everything we find out that the lectern on the top because this really stuck with me is just a simple wood lectern that zion's going to preach from events like this are not that humble like in real life like it's like acrylic and it has laser etched crosses and stuff in it like just go watch any mid to high budget televangelist or something you're gonna see those crazy lecterns and this gets into something that i wanted to talk about briefly i've said it in some other episodes but it's something that i really want to hammer home here evangelicals believe themselves to be the fulfillment 
of Judaism. I heard the phrase adopted Jews a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. Now, being an adopted Jew can mean other things within the context of actual Judaism. I've, I'm going to get this wrong, but I've heard that like you're not a Jew, you marry into a Jewish family, you'd be considered an adopted Jew, you know, maybe you don't necessarily convert. I'm probably wrong about that, but I have heard it thrown around in non-Christian context, but that's kind of the deal. And that's also why a lot of evangelicals will make their own pilgrimages to Jerusalem and to the rest of Israel. It's a thing. And so to have these 144,000 Jewish folks at this conference all training to be Christian evangelists, it's doing something for people for whom this is their worldview mm-hmm. in almost kind of a fanboy way. Did you catch that? I, yeah, I kind of saw that because like you, you're talking about how like a lot of Christians just believe like they are the successor and like fulfillment of Judaism. This kind of just like you're kind of milking that strand like really, really hard in this section. I have a personal story. Oh, go for it. Guy that I'm friends with on Facebook from my old church days had posted something funny about, I think it was about how Easter and a lot of pagan holidays, you know, got adopted by Christianity, things like that, kind of poking fun, just saying like, hey, you celebrate Easter, remember you're celebrating a pagan holiday. And this guy who I don't know, I'm not a Facebook comment guy, like I typically don't read them, nor do I interact with them, but it happened to pop up on my feed and I thought it was so funny. Dude is apparently major even evangelical like big right-wing guy swung into the comments with an essay oh no and just wanted to tell my buddy all pagan rituals are just a satanic twisting of original hebrew rituals citation needed that came as a result of the fall of man at the tower of babel citation needed (laughs) that reminds me of whenever i would bring up that there was religions like that existed before christianity and judaism and i was just met met with like the young earth theory and like no it can't there can't be any uh, religions before them because like this is when the earth was made those guys are a special class of nerd yeah like there's christian people that like i'm cool with and especially if you're listening i love you But then there are also people who are like the young earth, borderline flat earth, Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark people Mm -hmm. who like will try to sit and give you a lecture at any party you're at about how that stuff is all scientifically justified. Those guys are a trip. They are so fun to talk to. If you are one of those people, I also love you, but for different reasons. <laughs> I mean, that all, I mean, that kind of ties into the school that I can't remember if it was Tim or Jerry. Their school got basically turned to an academy for that after they left. The Institute for Creation Research. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all those guys. And those guys wrote a lot of the curriculum that I had studied when I was in Christian school and then later when I was homeschooled. And it was thankfully when I switched over to public school, it was the year that I was taking entry-level biology and they were like oh by the way church kid who has never been exposed to evolutionary theory here's why it's not the devil really they they kind of sat you down and like in a way I had a wonderful biology teacher that year who herself was a Christian, very sweet lady, who I brought that concern to her as a church kid. And I was like, hey, I'm I'm a Christian. I was taught that this was evil. And she was like, well, listen, I understand. But you also need to understand that there's nothing in the Bible that specifically says that this is not the case. A lot of this stuff is metaphorical. And she kind of went down the list with me. And that was something that I took back to my parents. And they were like, no, she's pretty much right. Oh, yeah. That was a thing that I had sort of absorbed from evangelicalism around me. Again, it wasn't really something that I got at home, but I had a very nice teacher who decided to take 
take time out of her day to sort of set me straight and show me the value of understanding science. That's nice of her. I like that. Yeah, yeah. We get a couple of high notes from Zion. We talks about the triune God, meaning the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and a mountaintop experience. A mountaintop experience is kind of that emotional high that you get, almost like a concert when you're at a thing with a bunch of believers. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Yeah. On a small scale, but this is like uber mountaintop for everybody there. He basically has to stop asking the crowd. He has to ask the crowd to stop cheering for literally everything. Yeah, because they just are going ham. Like whenever he says a few words, they're like, yeah, dude, like keep on. Just like over and over and over. But he's so smooth with it. He's like, look, all of this is great, but we're going to be here all night. So we get a few key verses here. We hear about Isaiah 9, 6. You want to throw that one in there? Yep. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That verse probably comes up around Christmas time for a lot of you guys, if you're, you know, around church people. We hear that if we do not praise God, the very stones will cry out his name. And that is uh, Luke 19, verse 40. And then we hear book of John chapter 14, verse 6. And this is probably, other than 316, one of the most iconic verses. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, we talked about the Romans Road in some previous episodes. Uh, John 14, 6 is another one of those witnessing verses that basically lays out, hey, Jesus is it, man, and there's no other way. Kind of, you know, puts certain branches of Christianity at very strict animosity toward other religions. And I think that's a lot of how I grew up feeling. And even like to other denominations of Christianity, I'd say too. Yep. Yep. Uh, He says our message is to the desperate, the sick, the terrified, and the bound. That's right. Sorry if your message is to only those people, those people are vulnerable and going to be more likely to receive your message. So he performs the sermon. He's talking about the great multitude, which we've talked about out of Revelation previously. Lots of scripture. It's kind of a LaHaye trick, which I've also mentioned. LaHaye will just sprinkle in cherry-picked verses to support his point, which I think is something that probably a lot of people do. But that's really what Zion is doing here, again, being a mouthpiece for LaHaye. Things take a turn when he gets to John 3.16. So for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that... (laughs) Everyone welcome Nikolai Carpathia. There is a helicopter that comes over the stadium and like it descends beside the stadium. My man knows how to make an entrance. Like Tony Stark in Iron Man 2. Like you might as well be playing ACDC. And I, I I like how he he literally is interrupting the most iconic Bible verse. Like, sorry, uh, hate to interrupt your Bible here, but uh, the Antichrist got to come in here. Like, it, dude, that's so cool. <laughs> like, the fact that he's giving the middle finger to John 316 really worked for me as a villain move. That's real good. But funnily enough, they got to call the translators back because as he starts speaking, people are like, huh? They can't understand him because he doesn't know. Oh, uh, dude, Leon gets up there like he is just the big man on campus and starts introing Leon and people are like, what is this guy saying? No Pentecost power for you, my boy. Yep, so the translators come back. They even ask like, who? Who 
are you using as a translator? And Zion just doesn't look at him, just staying stoic. Yep, power move. They introduce his excellency, global community potentate, Nikolai Carpathia. No one applauds. It's silent. Yeah, every eye was on Fortunato except Zion. He gathers himself and Leon introduces Enigma Babylon, one world faith, supreme pontiff, Pontifex Maximus, Peter II. Again, no one reacts. And then we get Peter II's uh, outfit description. Can we talk about this outfit? Yep, let's uh, give him the runway here. Can, can you read from the scripture for me yes, real quick? I can. The exact quote. Buck watched agape as Peter II lifted his hands to the crowd and turned slowly in a circle as if to include everyone in his pompous and pious greeting. He wore a high peak cap with an infinity symbol on the front and a floor-length iridescent yellow robe with a long train and billowy sleeves. His vestments were bedecked with huge inlaid brightly colored stones and appointed with past woven cords and bright blue crushed velvet strips six on each sleeve as if he had earned some sort of double doctorate from blacklight discotheque university but covered his mouth to stifle a laugh when matthews turned around he reviewed astrological signs on the train of his robe this man shows up dressed like a jojo's bizarre adventure character <laughs> and i am living for it dude this is probably my favorite like description of a character in the this is a maria movie. brink costume if we ever do a convention can we both have like something like this on I, sure <laughs> dude, let's do it Let's, uh, like, this is such a deep cosplay poll. I almost want you to do it. <laughs> hey, who would you come to the con as? I came as Enigma Babylon, One World Faith, Supreme Pontiff, Pont Pontifex Maximus, Peter II. Who'd you come oh. as? Oh my God. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, Goku. <laughs> it's not true. I'm never gonna cosplay Goku. I feel like I need to go home and change. <laughs> Okay, we gotta talk about this for a second. Okay. The Zodiac signs is just the most new age baiting. Yeah. Because we talk about like fear baiting a lot. And I usually will say like the thing that they're afraid of followed by the word baiting in case any of you guys didn't know what I was talking about. Fear baiting specifically with like any sort of new age spirituality, anything like that. That is why for some inexplicable reason, he's covered in Zodiac signs. This is a thing specifically from like the 80s and the 90s, like Satanic Panic into some of this other stuff. There is another author that once we finish the Tim and Jerry canon, we may hit. It's an author named Frank Peretti mm -hmm. who wrote a series about spiritual warfare that involves a lot of new age mystic characters as the bad guys. Oh my gosh. Trucking with literal demons. It is nuts. And we may end up talking about it. Um, I'm, I'm here for it. That sounds like a, yeah. another journey in itself. There's two of them that I know of. It was This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness were the two books that I read. Around the same time I read these. So yeah, literal demon fighting. And in fact, Apollyon, the name of this book, I'm gonna go off on a tangent real quick. Okay. This one always stuck out to me. One, because the subtitle is super f***ing cool. Mm -hmm. Destroyer is Unleashed is a badass title. And two, because the word Apollyon actually comes up in other Christian fiction, specifically a book called Pilgrim's Progress. You've heard me mention it before. Yep. 
that's written in early modern English by a guy named John Bunyan. It is impossible to read. However, there have been a lot of interpretations of it. I've said before, it's an allegory. It's um, it's a lot like a Christian video game, like a quest where a guy goes from living in sin to making it to heaven, and it's all played out like a fantasy story. At one point, he fights a demon named Apollyon, and he fights him using like the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, and the full armor of God and stuff. And I knew that story at the time, and then I recognized that name from an interpretation of Pilgrim's Progress that I had read as like a like a kid's version. And at the time, that was the closest thing to demon fights I could get because I remember watching an old like VHS animated version of it, like from like the 70s. Oh, whoa. And it was a cool demon fight. I had not yet found Toonami and Yu Yu Hakusho where I could watch way better demon fights. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I latched on to, to Apollyon. So when I saw that one, like in the Christian bookstore and stuff as a kid, I was like, oh, I got to read that one. Maybe that's why I was so into it was because of the demon stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think that that would have pulled me in if I knew that was like later in the series. Yeah, I was super here for it. So yeah, that's another reason why I'm way into this book. God, what an entrance that Peter makes. Puts both his hands up and says, the blessings of the universal father and mother and animal deities that guide us along our path to a true spirituality in the spirit of harmony and ecumenism. Sorry, Gavin. You know, <laughs> no ecumenism for you, buddy, or you're the bad guy. We should, uh, in the second half of the series, we should do uh, our art again as us as villains. And I call uh, Matthews, if you want Carpathia. I do look pretty good in a suit. <laughs> Engage just that description. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he did such a great job on our originals. He did. So anyway, Nikolai finally takes the lectern. No one claps. No one stands. Just the most cold reception that the golden boy has ever received. Buck steps out. He's not even going to listen to Nikolai talk. He's like, I'm going to go check on Yakov. Uh, he heads to the car. Mac gives him a call. It turns out Mac's the one flying the chopper. Uh, he's like, man, you got to hear what they're saying in here. They are cussing you guys out. They were so ready to be done with you. Like they are ready to come in and just f up your whole party. And then that brings us into chapter four. Because Rayford knows that the global community brass was away from New Babylon. He emails David Hasid real quick at the underground shelter. And he's just like, you know, pr things are pretty quiet now with uh, Abbott and Costello away. Such a dated reference. He's just like, aren't you a bit too young for that reference? And he's like, you know what? They're my favorites, especially now that they're ruling the world. Ha <laughs> ha. What's up? Dude, remember, remember what I said earlier about how the good old days media is fine to like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Abbott and Costello is totally okay. Because I literally was just like, man, that's an old reference. And David's like, oh, by the way, I've also been assigned to Buck. So Mac's been assigned to Ray. David's been assigned to Buck. David is supposed to use his hacker skills to track Buck down. So it's hacker versus hacker, but not really because David's just going to cover his tracks. David has to hook the laptop to the TV to make the meeting easier. And David laughs and like, oh, next you'll tell me your mini disc players blinking 12 o'clock all day and night. And apparently it is. So <laughs> Ray ain't good with tech. No, he's not. He's a boomer. So according to David, the GC is the most technologically advanced regime in history. And I just wrote, <laughs> because it's just old boomer LaHaye being afraid of technology. And like, while true, totalitarian regimes have definitely continued to use technology to oppress their people. Uh, it's not for the same reasons. And it's not because it comes from the devil. And then we get a great line from Hattie before we cut back to Buck. She's talking about Matthews. She goes, oh, just wait. He's going to have that guy killed. <laughs> yep. He's going to have Matthews murdered. Just you watch. 
So as Buck uh, emerges from the stadium, Carpathia's eloquence reverberates. Yeah, he's still got it. And so, my beloved friends, there's no requirement that your sect align itself with the one world faith for you to remain citizens of the global community. Within reasonable limits, there's room for dissent and alternative approaches, but consider with me for a moment the advantages of pr and privileges and benefits that have resulted from uniting of every nation to a global vil uh, village. And he goes on and just says everything that he's done for the global community. And he's not wrong. That's something that I'll, I'll always give him credit to. I mean, he's, he has kind of made things a bit better. And like, yeah, he's killed some people, but like omelets and eggs, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and so he goes down list of his achievements. He talks about creating the superstructure necessary to control the world and declare himself God is what Buck is contemplating about all of his achievements. Well, all that was just so he can make himself into God. It's real Illuminati. Buck kind of feels like Yakov is sort of being swayed because they always say how Nikolai's voice has that ability to sway people. He's got the Jedi Bene Gesserit like voice, you know? Yeah. It's got the devil voice. And Nikolai starts going on and on. And then something happens. For the first time that we've ever heard him, Nikolai stumbles. Yeah, his voice starts getting really, really raspy. Yep. And he starts like clearing his throat real hard. And he's just like, sorry, I, I need some water, dude. And someone gives him a fresh bottle of water, ice cold, to the stage. When he drank it, he just starts gagging and spitting, and when he spits the water out, it is just blood. Nice. Yeah, and then, like, he starts just... He loses his cool. Freaking out and, like, yelling at anybody, like, threatening to shoot uh, any some people dead where they stand. Specifically Zion, because as soon as he says that, enter the witnesses. They just appear behind him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without the need of amplification, everyone within a block of the place can just hear Eli Moisha in their usual barefoot, shoulder-to-shoulder, uh, -shoulder sackcloth boys. Woe unto you who had threatened the chosen vessel of the Most High God. Carpathia throws the water bottle down, and as soon as he throws it down, clean water just splashes out of it. Yeah, it's a real Moses Exodus moment. Mm -hmm. You guys seen Prince of Egypt when he's standing in the bloody Nile River that he just turned to blood, but the water around him is clear? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yeah, he's freaking out. And then they speak with a voice like the Greybeards from Skyrim. Like you imagine like the shock waves of their voice are like battering against Nikolai. They don't describe it like that, but that's how I choose to see it. We're writing a better book here. <laughs> so the bottle of water in Buck's pocket goes frigid because the witnesses say those who serve the Lord drink and be refreshed. All the water that is in the 144,000 or anyone who's present that's a believer's hands goes cold and they're able to drink it and they feel refreshed. Yeah. He tries to hand some of it to Yaakov, who is not a believer, who tries to drink it, blood. And as soon as Buck picks it up, it turns ice cold again and back to water. And Yaakov, at the sight of this, falls to his knees. And he's like, oh God, I'm no better than Carpathia. I want to be a child of God. I want to be a sealed one. And Buck stand over, I'm like, hey, buddy, if you want that, that's uh, that's what you'll get. And Yakov just like lowers his face to the pavement, just sobbing and like, I, I believe, I believe, I believe, picks up a, a bottle again. It's cold to the touch and he drinks it and feels refreshed. We got another one, boys. He uh, and then Buck takes his face in his hands and goes, Yakov, you have the mark on your forehead. He starts like ecstatically just jumping around like, I feel brand new. I'm brand new. Hurry. Let's just go. Let's go look at each other's marks now. <laughs> 
Reminds me of church when I was little. Got people pew jumping now. At last, Zion, who has been silent for the whole episode, watches Nikolai slink away in shame onto his helicopter that takes off. And as soon as the sound dissipates, Zion, like an absolute boss, says that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Like, doesn't even miss a beat, picks up right where he left off and finishes his sermon. Yep. Back to the safe house. Hattie is declining rapidly. The, again, another one of the big setup moments that everything that really happened in Soul Harvest gets just, like, snapped away in this first third. Because all of the the moralizing on whether or not Hattie should carry this pregnancy to term or not is completely thrown out the window in the most gruesome and uncomfortable scenes that we have seen in Left Behind before. Is this it, Gav? Yeah. Is this your moment? This is it. So why don't you talk about this bit? Okay. Patty uh, emits just a piercing scream, and we probably want to put a content warning on All right, this. Let's, let's back up. Content warning before this one. It's really graphic. There is some depictions of a miscarriage, and I know that that can be a trigger point for people. They don't pull any punches, and in fact, I think that they pump up stuff that really doesn't need to be pumped up. Like Gav said, this is just, don't put this in your book. So if you want to catch up again we'll try to get through this in about two or three minutes and then you guys can uh can come back in yeah okay so hattie lets out a piercing scream she starts freaking out because she's worried that she lost her baby she even says at some point like please i'm only staying alive for my baby some interaction with the doctor happens where they're trying to they get a believer doctor in now that believer doctor is an important named character Mm -hmm. leah she's the one that we saw in soul harvest who works at the hospital in Palatine. Keep an eye on Leah. So yeah. Kind of like David, she's one of the ones to watch. Floyd is worried that Hattie is going to spontaneously abort, which is another word for miscarriage. Mm -hmm. I don't like that they chose that word. I know it's a little bit more of a medical term, but just given all the moralizing that you mentioned about abortion, it's just, come on, just say miscarry. So they get her to an operating room. Leah bends the rules to get them in there, even though Floyd doesn't work there anymore. So they're definitely breaking some laws here. We get a whole bunch of medical jargon that honestly doesn't matter. We also get a, a pretty interesting line. Uh, is That's not who I think she, it is. Is Sheehan's like, wait, you ever hear of another Hattie? Not in this century. Does um her boyfriend know what's going on? Or should we plan a trick to a gulag somewhere when he finds out? <laughs> Which that was a weird, like, out of left field remark oh god they complete the procedure and they say the dead baby was so underdeveloped and small it it slipped quickly from hattie's body floyd wrapped it and pieces of the placenta then handled the bundle to leah hattie asks to see it the doctor's like no no, no you don't want to see this. this this doesn't even look like a baby kid you don't you don't want to see this is it ray that takes the fetus and brings it to the incinerator yeah, yeah, he he asked where to take it, and he's like, into the hall, two um, floors down. Hattie's just like, please, Rayford, I want to die. And that's the end of chapter four. I do want to point out that Hattie actually tells him to stop calling it a fetus, which is a very, like, pro-lifer talking point. Don't call it a fetus, call it a baby. Yeah. Or even Floyd is like, hun, it's not a baby. Th so he's weird. It's so weird and contrary to their shit. That section in particular, oh my God, like that made me so uncomfortable to have to like listen to that and read that a few times. Yeah, dude, it's really rough. We glossed over it, but just because I didn't want to dwell for like 10 pages on every little detail that they throw at you because it's just, it's really morbid. Yeah. 
So we're going to pick up with chapter five. We're going to knock out a couple more chapters and then we're going to call it a day. So in chapter five, Yaakov is ecstatic. Like Gavin said earlier, he's looking at other people's marks. Buck kind of contemplates about how one day the mark is going to be all they're going to have to identify each other. They can't even like point up anymore. They won't be able to like talk about it because the mark of the beast is coming. It's kind of back to what I talked about the Jesus fish a couple episodes ago. So they sort of repeat that point. So Mac calls Buck and he is immediately talking in code. And we know that when Mac's talking in code and pretending to be a plane talking to the tower or something, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Chloe and Zion are in danger. They immediately start gathering together to be able to handle this. And Yakov reaches under his seat, pulls out an Uzi, and shoves it in his waistband and covers it with his shirt. And Buck's like, come on, dude, they're they're probably going to see that you have that. But he's like, you know what? It's dark. It's fine. Let's just go. Yep, he goes for it. Zion and Chloe are at the lower northwest exit. They're being guided by Mac. Yakov runs in with his Uzi. The GC chopper being piloted by Mac goes to the opposite end of the stadium, starts kind of creating a diversion. Yakov decides that's not enough of a diversion. So he's running around firing his Uzi into the air to create a diversion. And Chloe and Zion run to the van that Buck is in and just like, go! And Buck floors it and they get back to Hyam. We cut back to Lay and Dr. Charles and Hattie's just sleeping all the way back to the safe house. Because Leah tells them, like, you guys can't keep her here. On the TV that they have by her bed, they're starting to cover the assassination attempt that they're framing as on Nikolai Carpathia's life that they're trying to look for the people that Yeah, they're spinning it now that the blood in the water bottle was an attempt to poison Nikolai. Yeah, I think that's a a little funny angle because he is very much overreacting to make him seem like still the bigger person in the scenario. Yeah, I mean, that's his old playbook, but he's really taking taking a soccer fall here. Yeah, <laughs> a soccer fall. Now you know exactly what I mean. Pull out that red card. Buck and the other two make it back to Hyam's compound. Um, and we know that they'll be somewhat safe here because Hyam has a degree of autonomy. Like they can't just go against the guy who is like the favored son of Israel. Mm-hmm. They go in and they talk about Nikolai being the Antichrist and Hyam's like, what you just said could get you killed. And so we're looking at the slow authoritarian march of the GC, which was just sort of a foregone conclusion in the other books, but it's really starting to happen now. We're getting to almost thought crime levels of stuff like you can't speak against the potentate yeah or else you're gonna get nixed Mm -hmm. back to hattie and ray ray is just really dealing with his emotions and he does a cuss oh yeah he did a cuss he swears under his breath and hattie even's like that's the rayford steel i once knew she said i kind of love her for that though she's like there he is there's the man who almost cheated on his wife uh, for me (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we get a bit of a change from Hattie now. So she has miscarried. She has lost her baby. She's lost her baby because of Nikolai. And Hattie says, hey, guess what? I'm gonna kill him. Rayford's like, you don't know what you're saying. It's like, oh, uh, I'm not going to be around much longer anyway but I don't have the energy to talk loud. Just just lean closer. I'm telling you, it, Nikolai is evil personified, but I know that he's the Antichrist. So like, you guys are saying that he is. No, I know for certain. 
that he is. I don't think an ounce of tr- there's an ounce of truth in him. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. You saw him acting the way he was like a friend of Matthews. Yeah, he wants him dead. He told me that himself. I told you he po- poisoned Bruce. He sent people to murder me after I was poisoned just to make sure. He made her do things that she should have never done. And while she was doing evil stuff, she enjoyed it. So Carpathia was trying to like twist her into this kind of pawn of evil. Yeah, Hattie's compromised. Yeah, she definitely sees that in herself as well. We are starting to get almost character development for Hattie. Yeah. Finally. But she's turning into like a Shadow the Hedgehog edgelord character now. I see no fear, no evil. <laughs> Hattie just comes out on roller skates. Hold on. Guns. Hold on. Hold on. You're not just going to drop a few bars of... I am all of me in this episode of the podcast and expect me not to react to that. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Just imagine Hattie coming out to that. She shoots a couple people, kiss, kisses a hedgehog. Um. <laughs> For like the two people out there that got that, you're welcome. That is staying in. She comes out silhouetted against the moon and cocks an M16 like it's a shotgun because that's how guns work. He jumps on a motorcycle. I gotta take a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. I had oh. to break the tension after that. uh, Yeah, that that was a palate cleanser, buddy. Oh my God. All right. So back to the story. So yeah, Hattie's edgy now. And then Ray kind of has like a aw moment because he had prayed for the honor of killing Carpathia. And I just like, why? Seriously, why? Do you know that like he ain't done once you killed him? The only reason why you want to kill him is because you want blood. You want to kill a man. That's why you want this. And that's, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's just, it's so dumb. I I feel you. And bloodthirsty, if we're going to repeat the things that we've said previously and that other people have said about these books, it's like people want to kill Nikolai. Yeah, sure. But like, you're not supposed to want that as a Christian. I don't care if he is the devil. Even killing the devil is not even your job. Like that's Jesus's job, bro. I mean, he doesn't even kill him. He just, spoilers. (laughs) It's not spoilers if you read the book, the, the big one, the Bible book. Rayford, yeah, he's relieved beyond description to find out that Amanda was all he believed her to be, a loving, trustworthy, loyal wife. Uh, They cut back to Buck and Chloe. They have, like, a kind of cute moment. Well, it's not even kind of cute. It's kind of campy. Uh, Yeah, dude, it sucks. Like, hey, you didn't answer your phone. I didn't know if someone had grabbed you or he's just like, hey, I turned it off when we were being chased. I didn't want to uh, give us away. That reminds me, I never turned it back on. And she's just like, don't worry about it now. Doesn't have to be on now, does it? And then it's like, what if what if someone tries to call? Oh, he can reach me on my phone. Like, okay, where is it? It's in the van. And then they just start making out because no, we'd have no time for phone. No time for love, Dr. Jones. So they also have a little exchange like, hey, I guess we weren't too smart to have a baby, huh? No, you weren't, guys. You weren't. There's literally no reason for you to do this. 
but you you did it. So that was dumb. And they start giving all these reasons why they shouldn't have had a baby. And I'm like, man, for people who don't believe in abortion, you sure have a way of like explaining the reasons why somebody might have an abortion. And then Buck says some more chauvinist stuff like, look, I'm going to get parental on you and start treating you like you don't have a brain. And I'm like, Buck, you're doing that already, buddy. We're actually in chapter six now. Yeah, chapter six is where we're going to end it. There is a little bit of a funny moment where they're explaining to Hayam what went down. Drawing the gunfire by shooting into the air was Yakov's idea, and Hayam just goes, the, the what? what? <laughs> Poor Hayam, man. Like, he didn't sign up for this. Cyan reassures Hayam that Yakov will be protected because of his ceiling, so that goes back to, if you're one of the 144,000, the GC can't come against you. Yep. And Hayam just gets annoyed because they're all talking about their marks. They're like, see, I got mine and you got yours and he's got his and she's got hers. And Hayam's like, I don't see any of this. You guys are you guys are messing with me. This is poppycock. It's arrogant. <laughs> yeah, he's like, could you guys just stop, please? I really empathize with Hayam in this room right now. They're being so extra about their Christian stuff. And Hayam's just like, seriously, like your guests in my home and you're you're going to do this right now. Yeah, because from Haim's POV, they're all just like pointing at each other's like temples and he's just like, what, what are you guys doing? Like, yeah, what is going on? So we finally get an address from Fortunato on the TV. Mm-hmm. We find out that he is looking more dapper and he gets described as a stocky middle-aged man. I think they've said that before and I know you have him as your Adam Conover. Yeah. in your head, but he's a little bit more middle-aged, a little bit more stocky. He's not an attractive guy overall, but he's starting to emulate Nikolai. Like he's emulating his speech pattern and sort of his turns of phrase and his cadence and everything. So we kind of get an update on the GC party line. It says they're now saying that the judgments were fallouts from energy spikes due to whatever caused the vanishings. Because remember the GC- Yeah, yeah, they're back to uh, book one speculation, but it's kind of evolved a little bit. Yeah, is that because in book one, they were like, oh, it's all the combined nuclear radiation caused a random phenomena that made everybody disappear. All the rest of this stuff, just fall out from that, which I mean, yeah, I guess whatever. Leon begins to tell the story of his resurrection and he literally calls Nikolai my deity. Yeah. And he's, yeah, without further ado, your potentate and to me, may I say, my deity, His Excellency Nikolai Carpathia. So now they're, they're fully hats off with, hey, Carpathia is probably a god. And as we're reaching toward the middle of chapter six and about to end the show, Nikolai goes in on Christians. And I am so here for this because he is starting to call out all of the inconsistencies that I have called out for the entire show about the way Christianity has been portrayed. So thank you, Nick. Thank you, buddy. I'm right there with you. He says, this is not Christianity. This is not the Christianity that I know, the tolerant, loving religion. This is a cult. It's a cult of former Jews, fundamentalists, and megalomaniacs. So people who just want power for power's sake. Ben Judah is using a feel-good doctrine with an us-versus-them mentality that will lead to war. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. Tim and Jerry are holding it up like that's a good thing. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that's kind of like their big uh, trait is they'll just take like the, like the biggest argument on the other side and get like a villain to say it and go, see, it's bad. It's like them calling themselves deplorables. Yeah. To go back to 2016, it is, I know you are, but what am I? Like, it is such baby brain eighth grader logic. Yeah. 
we made the bad guy say it, therefore it must either not be true or it's actually a good thing if the bad guy says it. Nikolai continues to say like he's trying to be magnanimous, but his hand is being forced. Like, ah, you know, I've tried to be the nice guy. I'm a reasonable man, but you guys have pushed me to my limit. They were rude to me. They're all being controlled by this Ben Judah, and then Ben Judah tried to poison me. He's really getting impassioned. He declares that what Zion has done is high treason, punishable by death, but I am a merciful God King Leonidas. I will allow these meetings to continue, and then Zion will be exiled again at their conclusion. I will not have him killed. I am merciful. And not only that, Eli and Moisha, they are also, for the next 48 hours, they're going to be restricted to the Wailing Wall, where they've been for like a few years already. But they're not to leave there for any reason at any time. And when the meetings in the stadium conclude, they must leave the Temple Mount area. And I've ordered that they have, they to be shot on sight. Any global community officer or private citizen is authorized to shoot to kill these guys, which don't think it, there's going to be any uh, quick takers on that. But it's open season on these boys now. Mm-hmm. As soon as that 48 hours is up, the due time is going to be rapidly approaching. <laughs> I'm going to switch things around a little bit here because we do have a little bit of back and forth. But immediately after this, Buck gets up and wants to go out into the city. He's going to do a little walking around. Buck's, you know, he's a restless guy. He sees Hyam yelling at Leon on the phone and doing Leon's favorite thing, which is calling him Leon. <laughs> Refusing to use his, uh, his title. In fact, he calls him Supreme Nincompoop. <laughs> Adorable. And then Leon hangs up on him. We find out that Hyam is starting to turn. Like he's really getting tired of Leon and he's starting to lose faith in Nikolai. Mm -hmm. Apparently Chloe has uh, been labeled a subversive who was guilty of looting during the earthquake. So they're just throwing any charges at the tribulation force that'll stick at this point. For the last bit of the chapter, we cut back to Ray, raising the safe house, worrying about Hattie, and Floyd meets him on the porch. It's a real go-out-and-have-a-smoke conversation, but of course they're not smoking because they're good Christians. And what does Floyd confess to Ray? He's really passionate about Hattie Durham. Ray's like, well, you think she's like a lost cause spiritually? You seem to want her to become like a believer pretty, pretty intensely. Is that what you're wanting? He's like, no, what I want is to love her. I do love her. I want to hold her and kiss her and tell her. I care for her so much that I've convinced myself I can love her. Back to health in every way, physically and spiritually. Didn't expect that one, did you? So he's just doing like the anime, like fist pine thing. I need an adult. Mark my words, I will get Hattie Durham to love me. Yeah, so weird drop at the end of the chapter that Floyd has full Florence Nightingale over Hattie. Which, I mean... All right, like that's not unheard of, but the way that they drop it so suddenly is really weird. He says a couple of other things about her, like, it's clear she's not unattractive. You know, when she was healthy, I'm sure she was a knockout. (laughs) Don't worry, Tim and Jerry told us plenty about that in the previous books. And uh, Ray just kind of looks at him and he's like, dude, that doesn't make any sense. I think he even clarifies that, did you like lose a wife in the rapture or something? He's like, yeah, I did. (laughs) Yeah, I'm lonely, man. Sorry. Ray tells him your love makes no sense. And he's like, yeah, I know it doesn't. And it just kind of ends there. It's so weird. Like, why do they keep doing this? They keep trying to lampshade the actions that their characters take. And then rather than like changing their tactics or informing the action that they take, they just go be like, yep, makes no sense. 
Anyway, Ugh. and that's going to take us out of chapter six, and we'll pick up next week with chapter seven and forward. How you feeling, buddy? Like I said, this is was about half and half, like, stuff I was really here for, and then half stuff that I was like, uh, this is, this is back to some uh, mediocre at best just absolutely awful at worst stuff. But once we get into later in this book, it'll really start picking up and give us some really great moments. Yeah. Well, that does it for part one of Apollyon, The Destroyer is Unleashed, here on I Survived the Rapture. Thanks for going through another one with us. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, always check your water bottles for blood. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at RapturePod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And lead you astray.